Dose of Leadership podcast, episode 75. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Before we start the interview, I want to point out a brand new product from my good friend Chris Widener. I had Chris on the show back in May. He's episode 56. You can go check it out. He's passionate about leadership and he's come out with a new product, a whole transformational leadership academy. I got to tell you, it's one of the most comprehensive leadership programs I've ever seen. It's just chock full. If you're serious about developing your leadership, you got to check out widenerleadership.com slash academy. What do you get with this package? You get 90 days, 13 weeks, 30 modules of, of transformational leadership. You get 16 powerful interviews with world-class leadership experts. Some of them have been on the show, including Mark Sanborn. You get bi-weekly Q&A calls with Chris designed to help you keep on track and answer specific questions, monthly leadership interactive guest calls, weekly support emails. It's just amazing what's all involved with uh, Chris's brand new Transformational Leadership Academy. Check it out, widenerleadership.com. Discover how to become a transformational leader and reap the benefits for a lifetime. Well, I'm pleased to have on the show Jonathan Spector. He's a president and chief executive officer of the Conference Board Incorporated. It's the most widely cited private source of business intelligence. The Conference Board convenes thousands of executives annually in council, conference, and meeting programs and publishes the Consumer Confidence Index and the Conference Board Leading Economic Index for 11 countries and regions around the world and other reports on economic trends and best management practices. Spector joined the Conference Board after serving as vice dean on the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He also began his career at McKinsey & Company. We were talking a little bit before the recording here about how he spent 20 years there, and he was elected senior partner. He's also a co-author of the book, We Are Smarter Than Me, which came out in 2007, which highlights the ways in which business can harness the power of collective intelligence. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show. I know you're a busy man. Richard, my pleasure. Well, gosh, we were talking a little bit about, you know, I, I worked with McKinsey quite a bit um, in, in my career, and I love working with those those folks. So much fun. Um, of course, I'm a process guy. I love coming up with processes and solutions and, and results. So tell me a little bit about your journey and how you got to, and of course, we'll talk about the conference board, but tell me a little bit, and on my listeners, about your journey and how you became passionate about leadership. Well, I mean, I think it did start at McKinsey. Um, I was there, so I, I went straight from college to business school when they were still accepting. In fact, I think I was the last year in which business schools were accepting college students as a result of the performance of my cohorts and I, they canceled the program. Um, but then I went straight from business school to McKinsey and I was there for 20 years. Uh, I left in uh, 2000, just early 2001. Um, and, uh, you know, when you, when you, when your first job lasts for 20 years and in a place like McKinsey, which is very focused on values, it really inculcates you into a way of thinking. And that has really, um, affected everything that I've done uh, since then. I'm grateful for it. it was, it's a fantastic institution. Um, it's a very unusual model of leadership. It's shared leadership or servant leadership, um, if you will. It's a partnership um, and uh, a huge focus on collaboration. And so the lines of authority are often not clear. 
Um, but it works, uh, it works fine because everyone has the same values. They're all pointed at the client, trying to help the client and do better with the client, not to focus on the business. Um, and with everyone pointed in the same direction, it turns out that leadership is, it's sort of a different type of leadership, but, um, the institution sort of leads itself. It leads to your values, I guess. And it's something that I've tried to bring then to the conference board with, you know, some, some degree of success. Not perfect. Well, I love the the mission of the conference board. I love. I mean, this is all what I love about this podcast is I learn so much. I meet so many interesting people, and I love uh, the uniqueness of your mission and it's the, and yeah. the the simplicity of it to promote the world's leading organizations with practical knowledge they need to improve their performance and better serve society. Great, right. brilliant. So, tell me a little bit more about the conference board. Uh, well, the conference board is we're a not for profit organization. We're almost a hundred years old. We were founded in nineteen sixteen, so we're coming up on our centennial wow. uh, anniversary. Um, and our um, we are a membership organization or an institutional membership organization. So you and I can't join, but um, our organizations can. Uh, there are about twelve hundred organizations around the world, mostly big corporations, but also smaller companies, um, universities are members. The CIA is a member. Um, you know, the U.S. Army, so government agencies can be members as well. Um, and all of them uh, get access to our research uh, and, and to the convenings of meetings that we have. Um, those are basically the two main activities that we undertake. We publish research and we convene executives to talk about the critical uh, critical business issues. Um, and we tend to operate at what we call the intersection of business and society. So we look at economics, we look at human capital issues, we look at corporate leadership issues like governance and risk and uh, and sustainability and things of that sort. Um, and many of the issues that we touch on, some of them are purely commercial, if you will, you know, how to improve your supply chain, but some of them uh, really do affect society very significantly, you know, education, workforce readiness, the environment, uh, trust in business and things of that sort. Uh, well, I was just going to say, it's monumental in, in what you're trying to accomplish there. I mean, it seems like at the at the root of it, do you see a lot of the challenges? Are they kind of um, the solutions, are they based in common sense leadership, do you think? Well, it's interesting that you say that. Um, yes, absolutely. And uh, But it's a level of leadership that I think goes beyond the walls of an institution, or well, I'll just say corporations, although, as I said, there are other types of organizations that are part of the conference board. But I, I think it's a type of leadership that goes beyond the institutional walls. And I actually think that that is a fundamental leadership challenge that we have today that is sharper, a sharper challenge and a much more complicated challenge than at any, any time in the past. And I know that, you know, it's, it's sort of fashionable to talk about problems and make it seem as if they're worse than they've ever been before in the history of business. But in fact, the environment, particularly the availability and the speed of communications and information and news or what passes for news, I think has really fundamentally put, made it very difficult for leaders of organizations to play a role that goes beyond the walls of their institution. And I can't tell you how many CEOs of large companies, of our member companies, you know, are preferring to basically keep their heads down yeah. and, you know, and, and to kind of live with the environment that they find themselves in and try to optimize and do the best they can for their shareholders and for their customers and for their employees and for the communities that they operate in, but that they've been unable or unwilling, unwilling and because they've been unable, I think, to have a significant influence on the environment around them. 
And I think that this retreat from kind of, if I can call it collective leadership of the business leaders in particular, is a, is a real threat. Um, it's, a, it's an opportunity lost, and, and it, it really, I think, is, is one of the critical issues that we're, we're focused on at the conference board, although we don't have any great solutions to it. So in that sense, it's a leadership crisis, but not the sort of leadership that you might typically talk about in terms of what does it take to, um, you know, to lead a particular organization. It seems to me that the companies that are um, knocking out of the park or crushing it, if you will, are the ones that um, are really tuned into their their purpose. And what I mean by that, they, they understand that their purpose maybe 50, 60 years ago was about – you didn't have to worry about like the, the, the more global – and communication and implications that we're faced with today. So it was more about, you know, shareholders, profit, margin, and all that stuff still applies because you have to be profitable. But the but the global purpose of why we exist seems to be the companies that are kind of, like I said, knocking out of the park are the ones that are tapped into that purpose, their, their global purpose. What do you think about that? You know, I, I think it's um – I think if I can use your phrase global purpose and, and sort of maybe define it a little bit more clearly um, or, or more in more detail, you know, a kind of connection to the community, um, supporting society, thinking about multiple constituencies, uh, triple bottom line. I mean, those are all connected ideas. Um, those are very, very powerful um, uh, concepts. But I think it's too early to say that that companies that have that that, that that focus on that are the ones that are knocking it out of the park. Um, you know, I think uh, uh, I think I I don't think I think we're in a middle period where, unlike say thirty or forty years ago, I think the the the, the, the triple bottom line construct or the societal the role in society construct is. It's much clearer that it's important for companies to do it. Right. But I don't think that we have a very clear model yet for exactly what it means to be successful in that realm. Mm. Um, I think that's still evolving. I think you see lots of different companies taking lots of different kinds of approaches. Some of them are very philanthropic. Um, others you know, work through their employees. Um, you know, some basically believe that it's just, you know, it's basically profit growth that is doing doing well is doing good <laughs> right. and you know and, and and they you know and I, I've heard been I've been part of many debates where some some business leaders basically feel that that the best thing they can do for society is to focus only on making a profit and that society will then allocate those resources and I don't think that's so why I, I, I think it's I think operating within the larger societal context is extremely important but it's not clear to me that it's precisely related to um, uh, uh, you know that that, it, that we can say that the companies that are hitting it out of the park are doing so because they're all focused more effectively on that than other companies are. Mm -hmm. I think it's still it's still unclear. You said earlier that some of the biggest challenges. I mean, you, you highlighted on some of the um, you know, maybe the the top leaders they don't know how to kind of maybe respond with the rapidity of the communication, how fast things change. What other big challenges do you think are facing leaders out there? Well, I think, uh, you know, I think there are maybe um, sort of operational and then environmental, I suppose, if you want to just to keep it very simple to sort of divide the challenges into those two categories. Um, from an operational point of view, uh, and by operational, I mean in a very broad definition of operational, um, you know, I think the, uh, the, the, 
changes in technology and also changes in the workforce and in culture and society um, make it, you know, I don't want to say increasingly difficult, but it's always shifting uh, environment in which to optimize and, and ensure that a company or an organization can perform and achieve its objectives. Um, you know, you've got different generations of people, you've got demographic shifts, and we've got different ways of communicating, different, you know, uh, younger people with work styles that are very different and expectations that are different from, you know, just people uh, entering the workforce 10 or 15 years ago, let alone their parents and their, you know, and, and people older than that. Um, you've got skill mismatch, mismatches and skill shortages. Um, so, you know, you've, you've got... You've got all of those sort of people-related problems, and then I think that's exacerbated by the fact that the economy is really becoming global now. And we thought it was becoming global 20 years ago, and 40 years ago we sort of said, hmm, it looks like it might become global. But we're now getting to the point where, um, you know, management teams are beginning to have and more and more companies are beginning to have a global balance of people located in a global balance of locations. And it's even just physically difficult to handle that. You know, at the conference board, for example, on our executive committee, we have nine executives. Seven of, seven of them are in New York. One of them is in Brussels, and one of them is in Beijing. And so already it's difficult for us to have a meeting. And right. we do it usually at 8.30 in the morning. But the poor guy in China is, you know, in meetings from 8.30 to 10 at night, and we only do that you know, a couple of times a month, and he understands that. But it's not going to be long before there's going to be four people in Beijing, you know, right. and one person in in Brussels, you know, two people in, in uh, Johannesburg, and three people in the United States. And then, you know, when do you meet? And what are the processes and so forth to do that? And, and then that those, those types of challenges roll down to every level of the organization. If you're, you know, if you're creating a low-level working team across seven different countries and people who don't have a lot of international experience and don't understand the cultural differences between those different places. How do they work together as a team? How do they make the Japanese and Chinese junior people on the team speak up? Because those folks don't speak up because it's not in their culture to do that. How do you get, you know, the Americans and the Germans not to dominate the discussion? And, you know, so those sorts of people challenges, I think, are you know, are constantly shifting. They're really, really tough, and I think they don't go away. They've been around for a long time, but I think, you know, they're, they're I don't want to say that they're getting worse, but they're certainly not getting better. Um, I think with, I think as, as the power of open borders, you know, as global, as global, as global free trade increases, sometimes fits and starts, sometimes it takes a step backwards, but by and large, the world is becoming a more open place with respect to trade. Right. Competition intensifies, and more and more competitors with different competitive advantages and different approaches and different home markets enter the fray. And so all of these are sort of operational challenges. I just think a CEO of any of any business today has got his or her hands full with making a business run properly given the technology changes and the people changes and the competitive changes that are they're taking place. I think you then add on to that in the last five to seven years, um, you know, very significant environmental changes around, uh, principally around economic growth and risk and volatility. Um, now that's something that over time, over the long run, will revert back to normal. But um, but certainly, um, as a leader, as a CEO today. You can't get out of your mind the events of the last five to seven years. And frankly, as you look ahead to the next five to seven years, you think that there's really 
a reasonable amount of risk that's still left in the system. Right. You know, Europe, China is slowing down. Uh, Europe is not yet figured out how to grow. Uh, the U.S. is economically doing okay, uh, but politically is gridlocked. And so you've really got a, you know, you've got a range of environmental challenges that are, frankly, temporarily at least, and by temporarily I mean for five or ten years, more severe than they were 15 years ago. Yeah, for sure, definitely. And I think, you know, I'm interested, especially coming from McKinsey for 20 years and then where you're at now at the C-level office, and, and you work with a lot of organizations, and you have, you've seen inside, you've been in the guts of them, and you've seen what works and what doesn't. I'm always fascinated by the fact that as an organization gets larger, there can be that tendency for this institution to dampen the inspiration, I guess. And how do you keep that from happening, I guess, from your experience? You, you've seen a lot of companies you know, behind the scenes. How do they keep that inspiration uh, not being tamped down? Boy, that's sort of you know, the secret sauce, it seems to me. Right. And, you know, there are, I think there are different, there are, there's no one answer to that. Um, I know you talked to Doug Conant from mm -hmm. Campbell Soup um, as one of your podcasts. Doug, I think, did it through an unbelievable level of caring for people. Right. And I think he was able to create a sense, ultimately, I think, uh, even among people who he had never met, <laughs> that he cared about them mm -hmm. and wanted them, and, and that creates a sense of comfort and support that lets people perform at their at their highest levels. I think, although I suppose, oh boy, uh, I think I think to be honest, and some of the theorists may cringe at my saying this, but I think that there are some people who inspire performance through pressure and a bit of fear, um, a kind of a, a take-no-prisoners approach. And they're not anti-people, but they, don't, they spend their time on discipline and rigor, and they get the best out of people who are confident and capable of operating independently and making their own judgments on their own and striving for higher and better performance. Um, I think there are some people who inspire their organizations through creativity and through, um, you know, an uh, incredible vision about what could be. I think Jeff Bezos is one of those. Yeah. Um, you know, he, um, you know, he has a view, and it's an evolving view. It's not static. It's not something that he, I mean, the core of it is static, you know, from, from 20 years ago, but it, it evolves, and he's just such a creative force that he unleashes, I think, a whole company. I think the folks from Google are, you know, the same way. So um, I think there isn't any one way to inspire people. Um, Oh, de definitely right. Each circumstance is different, but even one kind of maybe collective thread, even listening to your response that I think – I don't think people should be afraid, and no matter what your approach, and, and certainly Doug's approach or even Jeff Bezos' approach or – you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with making the – I mean you have to make the place a little uncomfortable. And what I mean by that is not like a dungeon, but you need to, to understand that um, – Performance matters. Yeah, that results matter. And <laughs> Let me talk a little bit about about how I'm trying to do it at the conference board because I'm trying to take, I suppose, pieces of that. But we're an interesting organization in the sense in that we're a not-for-profit. 
And I go to enormous lengths to try to never admit that <laughs> right. internally. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, because there's something about um, about it that is an excuse for less performance than what we would otherwise have. Yeah. But let me... But there's a flip side of being a not-for-profit that really, I think, does fit into an appropriate inspirational model. And that is that we have a lot of people here, probably more proportionally than, you know, you'd have at, you know, American Airlines or Walmart or, or Citibank, who are here because of our mission and our purpose. Mm-hmm. And it's not that American Airlines or Walmart or Citibank don't have a good purpose. I mean, they're all very important institutions. They create lots of jobs and they do a great job in serving their customers. But I don't think that you've, you know, you see a lot of people joining Walmart because they really want to deliver a broad range of products and services at low cost to as many people as they can. But you do have people joining the conference board because they believe that our mission to help, not just to help companies perform better, but also to help them better serve society is something that means something to them. Mm -hmm. And what I've tried to do, and I, you know, have been, I'd say, 50% 50% successful. I don't want to give myself any higher grade than that. The glass is always half empty from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, what I've tried to do is to inspire people around that mission and to say, you know, if we all work together as one institution, we can grow the conference board. We can deliver greater value to our members. We can create more financial results for us. And since we're a not-for-profit, those financial results aren't going to go to shareholders. They're going to go back into our mission. Right. There's no other place for them to go. Right. So I've tried to create a kind of a, business, a commercial pressure for the proper purpose at a not-for-profit. And, um, you know, we've struggled like others have in reacting to the environment. We've had a, we have a conference business which is extremely sensitive to the economy and which took a went down by... Our revenues dropped by sixty percent in eighteen months, um, but we've you know we've managed to grow our business back, and this next year will be our best year ever. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that you know people are to some degree they can see the connection between the mission and the purpose and day to day business that we do and revenues that we generate, and that connection isn't perfect, and there are times when it gets confusing. Um, which is a particular challenge, I think, for a not-for-profit. But, but it's another way, of, it's a unique way, I think, in the not-for-profit world. It's, it's a little bit different than in the for-profit world, but it's another way of inspiring people and, 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 and the leadership that's needed to create that inspiration. Yeah, I've looked at it. I've worked with a couple of non-profits, and they've asked the same. They said that was their biggest challenge. Is like, but as you point out, it can be a great asset. And it's right, because you're, you, are, uh, you do attract an element of people who want to be part of something bigger than themselves. It's a right. difference, like in my personal difference, is like, why did I join the Marine Corps? I didn't join the Marine Corps for a nice paycheck. I wanted to be part of something big, right. bigger than myself. Right. Exactly. Why, why did I join American Airlines? I didn't join, I don't even, I couldn't even tell you what American Airlines mission statement was. I didn't really care. I just wanted to fly planes and get paid, you know, a decent right. amount of money, right? So those, those right. are the differences. Those and, are very different, right. Yeah. And so... And both are okay. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's nothing wrong with either one, but you're right. I think... You're onto something there about, especially for nonprofits. If you can tap into the higher purpose and the calling, you can attract a whole different type of employee, which can be an asset to help you through all those other challenges that you have to deal with that maybe a profit company aren't, aren't exactly. faced with. Yeah, so, that's oh, exactly right. I love that's that. Exactly how I see it. Well, I'm curious, John. If, uh, I'm curious about 
who kind of your mentors were. Can you name a person who's had a tremendous impact on you as a leader? Uh, sure. And um, I guess I've been fortunate uh, to have several. And so if I can break the rules a little bit and talk about a couple of really two categories of people. Um, the first were a group of senior partners uh, at McKinsey & Company when I uh, first joined the firm. Um, uh, Carter Bales, Tino Puri, Dolph DiBiasio, three, Pete Walker, four among a very illustrious group. Um, but all of them, you know, took a, an interest in me and, uh, and really helped me, taught me really the values, which was the most important thing. And from that kind of stems everything else. And those values were appropriate for McKinsey, but they were been appropriate for everything else that I've ever done since then. Uh, and, um, and so I'm really indebted to those folks. And I should say, by the way, that there was, I was not a special case. I think McKinsey is an institution that, um, that really has figured out that mentorship is something that is not a special event. It's something that the firm does routinely. And I've tried to do that everywhere I've gone. I've not been anywhere near as successful as my colleagues at the firm, but uh, I've tried to mentor people in the same model, even outside of McKinsey. And, and I've had some modest successes at doing it. So the first group of people that have had an incredible impact on, on my life have been the partners at McKinsey. Now, the second group are the board members that I've had, and particularly the chairs of the board that I've had at the conference board. Um, uh, Sam DiPiazzo is the CEO of uh, Pricewaterhouse and now the vice chairman of Citibank. Uh, Doug Conant, the CEO of Campbell Soup, and Alan Dax, our current chair, who's the CEO of Fremont, uh, the, uh, the uh, venture capital and uh, financial institution out in California. And all three of them have, um, you know, in their own different ways, have really helped me to focus to um, you know come up with the right decisions it, it, I would not sure I would call it mentorship as much as I would call it um, well mentorship I guess but also direction and and idea generation and um, pressure and support <laughs> all of those things uh, combined um, but uh, having a relationship with a board and with board members of such that illustrious character is um, is really uh, it's one of the things that makes my my job enjoyable although it can can uh, it's 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 a burden from time to time but uh, on balance it's really um it's really something that makes the job incredibly exciting and i think the institution of the conference board benefits it's not just me personally that's benefiting it's the institution as well so i've been really lucky you know partners at mckinsey early in my career uh, board members and chairs later in my career and uh i mean i think most people would be lucky to get one of those i've had both well, what strikes me about that answer, and, and I've learned a lot from talking to folks like yourself on this podcast, I mean, it's something that I think you inherently knew, but it's really hit home for me how important, how important it is and to understand that you can't do this alone. And uh, everybody, to a T, has relied and, and been thankful for the great kind of lineage of teachers and mentors and parents. I mean, the list goes on and on. It never ends. And even when hearing for someone at the, the C-level office that you're at now, it, it's still going on and you're still learning. And so it's refreshing to, to hear that from, from my perspective anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I'd be surprised if you speak to many people who miss that point. I mean, it is, I know it's a truism or, you know, a cliche that, you know, it's lonely at the top, but it is. Yeah. And uh, I think we all really benefit from, you know, from that mentorship wherever it comes from. Well, guys, it's been a true pleasure talking to you today, and I think that um, what's it, give a quick plug to where people can find you a little bit more. Uh, well, uh, www.conferenceboard.org um, 
you know, we're we're out there with our economic data every every month, even even every day, with our research and our our events. Um, and they can find us and me uh, pretty clearly there. All right, John. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a true pleasure. And again, thank you for taking time out out of your busy schedule. It's meant a lot that uh, you came on the show. Well, I'm happy to do it. And let me just say that it's, I mean, I hope your viewers, your listeners have gotten something out of it. But I have to say that for someone participating in this discussion, it's it's really valuable as well. You know, we don't, I mean, CEOs, I think in general, certainly I don't get a lot of time to reflect on things and to answer the kind of questions and think about the kind of questions that you've asked. And so uh, for me, at least, this is, you know, this has been an opportunity to think about what you're asking and why it's important and to uh, to take away some, some thoughts that I might be able to apply myself. So, uh, again, I, I hope it's been valuable to your listeners, but it's certainly been valuable to me. So well, thank you. Well, thank you, and it certainly has. And, and uh, again, thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com. 